Welcome to the Agile Book Club. Here are your hosts, Justina and Paul. Good morning, Justina. Good morning, Paul. It's really nice to see you. I wish our listeners could see you as well because you are smiling a lot right now. I'm I'm happy. I don't know why I'm happy. I didn't get enough sleep last night because guess I'll give you I'll give you three guesses. I bet you get <laughs> on one. Why didn't I get enough sleep last night? Cats. Cats. <laughs> These cats are ten years old now, and and ever since they turned seven, my wife has been telling me at seven years is the point at which they start to to run the risk of of kidney failure. A, a purebred, um, a purebred ragdoll cat has a very very high chance of of developing uh, kidney problems between seven to 10 years of life. And now it's a 10 and these things are still way too healthy, way too mm-hmm. healthy. You know, when you get a cat, you want a cat, you love a cat, but you also understand that they have an expiration date. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wasn't committing to, to 20 years of care for these things. <laughs> and I, and I, I, lo- I love them. I love them. But, but, but nothing before, but matters for. <laughs> but, I've loved them for 10 years and that's enough. No, <laughs> it's not like that. You know, you know, my terror is what I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely terrified about is that they will linger. What, what does it mean? Linger? That they won't just die. They'll just, they'll just linger. They'll get to the point where they can't climb into the, the litter box themselves. And so I have to like carry them around and I have to, to, to clean up after them and I have to bathe them and, and, and spoon feed them or feed them with a, with a medicine dropper or something like that. I want, I, I want them to just have a wonderful, wonderful life, a wonderful long life. And 10 years is fine. Um, a wonderful life. And then just snap. I want, I want them just like a heart attack, but I don't think I'll be so lucky. It could have happened yesterday, and I would have been okay with that, and would have felt much better today. Uh, <sighs> but you know, Paul, the cat what haters you just podcast. But you, Paul, what you just described as this lingering and how the cat lives—it's like how my life of my cat looks since the moment I got him, because he's like between fourteen and fifteen years. <laughs> so I have to carry him sometimes on the stairs. I have to feed him with a, with a um, fork because he has like two teeth maybe or, or so. So yeah, but I wanted to give him the best last, I hope will be just years, like a few years of his life. Because if I would have to do it for 20 years, oh, I'm happy that Tommy's there to do it as well. Because yeah, that's <laughs> a lot. But Paul, 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 when we are talking about cats, I know that you went for the holidays with the new fancy machine for writing that kind of avoid any distraction. And there is one book that I'm really waiting uh, for you to to finish. Did you do any progress with that? I did quite a lot, actually. Um, I really enjoy this new device. It's got a great keyboard, and you can't do anything else with it. And so for this whole holiday when I was in the forest, I didn't have, have a phone, I didn't have a tablet, I didn't have a laptop. So if I wanted to do something, just creatively the only thing i could do was just type on my my free ride traveler and and i did i did three things i started doing a lot more journaling like like extensive journaling not the short journaling i used to do i i did a lot of the the preparatory work for the book that you want to read the one about the 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 land of cats and and it's 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 evolved interestingly i found a a book i i 
forget the title off the top of my head, but I'll stick it in the show notes if, if any other writers out there are interested. But it's a book it's, uh, that, that contains 30 exercises that you do, one exercise a day if you want to do it over the course of a month. And each exercise helps you to better develop the plot and the theme and the, the characters and such. And so I've been working through that. I'm about halfway through it. And, uh, and what I thought was going to be a short story is definitely going to be bigger. Um, it's not going to be a novel, but I'm thinking like a novella. So, so I've got, got a theme now, which, which gives it a lot more meaning to me. It used to be just a cute fable kind of, kind of plot. But now I realize that, that I really want to get in and kind of explore some very different points of view about these, the, the conflict between, between faith and tradition and desire. And this is a really good world in which to do that. So I think I'm going to to do all the preparatory work, but then actually write the story itself for National Novel Writing Month. And so maybe maybe it can be a Christmas present for you. Okay, okay, okay. So listeners, <laughs> please hold Paul to be accountable for my Christmas gift as much as I'm doing it just right now. And did you, Oh, did but you I started writing something else that's a lot of fun, just oh, yeah, for fun. Um I'm about halfway through a, a, a one-act play called Henry, Prince of Denmark. And it's basically, <laughs> it follows the first act of Hamlet. And everything that happens in the first act of Hamlet happens in the first act of Henry, Prince of Denmark. Except instead of the Hamlet character, there's Henry Percy from Shakespeare's Henry IV, parts one and two. You know, the character that, that mm -hmm. everyone calls Hotspur, who is just violent and, and, and aggressive. And, and one of his quotations, I think is something like, like uh, he's described as a man who could kill 10 Scotsmen before breakfast and then complain about, about this peaceful country life. And uh, so I put him in this, this place instead. And so needless to say, he just rushes straight into everything. And it's a one act play because as soon as he meets with the ghost and as soon as the ghost tells him, what happened, he runs straight into the castle and, and kills Claudius. Just <laughs> straight in. Knocks Polonius aside, kills Claudius, explains the whole thing to his mother, and Gertrude says, oh, well, now everything makes a lot more sense. That explains everything. And that's the, the last line of the play. Oh, my. That, that sounds really I've, 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 I've kept the dialogue basically very similar, but I was doing it from memory. But I added a comic twist to all of it. Like, like in the ghost scene, the ghost is, is saying, I was, I was, I was murdered, you know, right? And, 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 um, Hotspur is like, who did it? Who is the villain? Who is this vile person who did this? And, and, and he's, oh, such, such a tragic, um, 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 uh, what, 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 what do I want to say? Uh, um, it came from the most unlikely place. Who, who's the person who did it? A man who was close to me, a man who I trusted. Just tell me the name, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> it was your uncle. And and afterwards, you'll sleep tonight. You'll sleep in heaven tonight. No, wait, son, there's more. Son. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Oh, but did you finish? Did you finish or no? No, I didn't finish. I, I just got through the whole conversation. Because there's there's rather an, an extensive um, um, introduction with with the guards and and um, and then of course there's a the conversation with the ghost. And I was I was trying to drag all of this out the same way Shakespeare does, 
Because mm-hmm. when you think about the story, when you remember the story, you remember the, the, the way in which the plot goes. But but it's really easy to forget that, you know, these two guards are out there. They've, they've got like 10 pages of dialogue before the ghost appears. So mm. so I wanted to drag it out so that the, the, the sudden dramatic ending would be even funnier. Mm. Oh, yeah. But, you know, Paul, that reminds me about my holidays in Denmark when we went to visit one of the castle. And actually throughout the visit in the castle, you could see the live play of Hamlet. And that was like really amazing experience for, for whoever goes to Copenhagen. We'll put in the podcast notes the name of the, the castle so you can also experience that. And maybe in a few years, there will be Hamlet infusion with Paul, Paul's uh, play there. That would be fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. That, that's, that sounds fascinating. Um, because the the sets are all very similar, I mean, except for like the graveyard scene and and such. But the sets can all be set inside of a castle, um, even the one on the ship. And what would be interesting would be to to experiment with since since each room has a different scene, presumably, and the scene I guess kicks off when you enter it. It would be interesting to think about whether or not there would be a, a, a ways that you could reorder the scenes in mm-hmm. order to have a different experience. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure how I would do that, but I can imagine things like, 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 for example, um, you know, in the, in the conversation, the first conversation with the ghost, when, in which, which Hamlet finds out how is his father was murdered. And, and he says, Oh, you just like in that play I saw last night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why Claudius was so upset at the play, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'll leave that to somebody else to think about. Yeah. So now, speaking uh, speaking of uh, books, uh, do you want to kick off with your elevator pitch of what we read this month? So today, we're going to be talking about The Culture Game, Tools for the Agile Manager, a book by Daniel Mesick that came out in 2012, although I didn't read it until now, which is, th- th- this is kind of striking. So I bought it in 2012. I bought the paper copy in 2012 and stuck it on my bookshelf. I bought it because it had the word culture in the title and culture always appeals to me. And I didn't read it yet because it had the word culture in the title. And and I had some bad experiences with people talking about culture without any kind of a, a, a a sociology or anthropology background and just saying some really ignorant things. I'm not going to mention which book it was, but I've been put off by non-specialists talking about culture. And so I was really scared that I would hate this book. And, and so it just sat there on my shelf for a decade. And now I really regret it. So, so let's go right into the elevator pitches, shall we? Do you want to kick it off? Justina? Yes. Yes. Yes, I think I want to kick it, off, kick it off because I'm afraid if you do your elevator pitch, there won't be any floor for me, you know, to say anything more. So, yeah. So I will start from for who I think this book is the best book. So I would recommend this book for every manager. And why? Because I think the manager responsibility is to build an environment in which people can learn. And that book delivers 16 patterns of learning environments. It gives you also the step by step 
checklist step by step list that enables you to build that environment. It is full also of examples, actionable actions that you can take even without any, any financial input. I wanted to count how many numbers, how many number during the book the author says this cost you zero dollars. <laughs> so literally it's full of the ideas that everyone can do, everyone in the management position without any budget. So I think that that's great because you don't need to allocate any finances for the big bank transformation of building the learning organization. And on the top of that, it gives it gave also the spotlight on a lot of stories from Zappos. I knew that Zappos is an interesting company, but I didn't know like so many little details and the stories that were actually very interesting for me. So it sent me out to, to the internet also to read a little bit more. So I think it's a, it's a really good book for the managers and for executives. So if you are the executive and you don't understand why your manager comes to you and tells you things about building, learning, organization, investing in teaching and things like that, I think this book can make you understand why it's important and why. You know, I'm really proud of you, Justina. You just did an elevator pitch aimed at a specific audience. You you managed to not recommend a book to everybody. <laughs> exactly. I know. You know why? Because right now when I was preparing myself for the podcast, I was thinking, everyone. I typed it and I was like, <laughs> uh -uh, Paul will laugh at me. No, 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 no. Let's look. Let's look deep, 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 deep. And choose maximum. Well, it's right there in the title. Thank Tools you. for the Agile Manager. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I really appreciate that about this book. Because Still. some books really do try to be everything to everybody. And he's speaking to a very specific audience here. And so I absolutely agree with you. This is a book for managers who want to have a positive impact on their company culture. And they already feel an affinity towards Agile values. And the, the other thing that I really appreciated about it, and the reason why I would recommend it, is while, and, and this is probably because it's from 2012, it's full of Scrum references, it's, it's very heavy with Scrum references, um, there's, there's some mentions of Kanban, and this was relatively early days of Kanban. I think I released Kanbanery, which was one of the first Kanban tools you could use on the web back in 2009. So this was like three years into Kanban. It was, it was just after David's book came out. But before there was any certified training or anything in it. So it's, it's really heavily referencing Scrum, but it's not dogmatic about Scrum. And, and, and I think that uh, the, the, the quotation from the book that summarizes what it tries to do is this one. The challenge really is to harvest these small team learning behaviors taken from agile methodologies and then apply them to the wider enterprise at scale. And the mechanism for doing this, there's a few ways to think about doing this. One of them, of course, is your, your, your typical agile transformation where you, you reorganize the organization, you bring in a bunch of coaches, et cetera, et cetera. And the other is the big top-down approach. And what he's making a case for here, which I think is really powerful, is the, the mid-level management-driven approach where you are a mid-level manager, you're responsible for a number of teams or a department or a division, 
You find a friend or two at your same level who is also interested in helping you with doing this. And then here is a a step-by-step guide that's not dogmatic, that's very open-minded about how to introduce agile values. And it recognizes something that I think is, this might even be unique. I, I, I've read a lot of books in this space, and I haven't come across something that we, with this, this kind of approach, is that the author acknowledges that an organization might not be ready for an agile transformation. And then, of course, that's the reason why so many agile transformations fail is the fundamental cultural values aren't in place. And so these practices are name, aimed not at just instantly turning your organization agile, but introducing, perhaps, perhaps I should say, introducing practices that can start to tip the culture in an agile direction so you can get some of those values in place in preparation for a bigger transformation. So I think that's what this book brings to the to the table as as a, a kind of unique contribution to the literature, and and for that reason, I think it's incredibly valuable to managers. So, and was was there was there something that like surprised you the most? Uh, you know, I think I think the thing that surprised me the most was its practicality. And, uh, and that is that books tend in this space tend to be either highly theoretical or highly, what's the word I'm looking for? Highly formulaic as in do this and then this and then this. And if you don't do all of these things, you know, Kent Beck's the white book. You can't do all but one of the XP practices. It'll fall apart. The scrum guide, you can't, it's immutable. You can't, you can't bring your own, own approach to any of these practices or introduce them in, in any other sequence. You have to do all of them together and do them right. Otherwise it's not scrum, which I could go off on that. You know, here, here I will go off on that. This is this is one thing I love about the Scrum Guide, and and one of the, the the frequent misinterpretations of it, which is that where it says the Scrum Guide is immutable, all of these practices constitute Scrum, and if you're not doing all of these practices, you're not doing Scrum, and a lot of people take that as an oh no, oh no, but I want to be doing Scrum. It it doesn't say you're a bad person or that your company will fail if you're not doing Scrum. It just says don't call it Scrum. And, and, and so when I read, when I read if, you, if you're not doing all of these practices as they're listed in the Scrum Guide, you're not doing Scrum. I think, so what? So what? The goal is not to do Scrum. It's to build a successful delivery capability that delivers value. And if you can do that without doing Scrum, more power to you. And if you can do that with doing Scrum, that's great, but it's just a first step. My, my hope for every good Scrum team is that one day they're not doing Scrum, that they evolve beyond that. So Scrum is not the destination. It's not the be-all and end-all. And this book recognizes that. And I really appreciate that. But I love that, Paul. Like now when someone will be telling me like, oh my God, I love Scrum. I will <laughs> is say, it working? So what? Is it working? That's what matters. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so simple. Okay, so... Let's move to the key takeaways, and I will start with the first one. Mm. 
And it actually comes from the beginning of the book, and it's the roles of signs and signals. So what the author is saying that we as human beings, we navigate through the organization, through our life, through signs and signals, the same as we navigate on the road. If you are on the highway and you want to change the line, you put your blinking light and people see like, okay, she's going to go to the right, left, <laughs> to, to the left or to the right, depending what you are doing. And they slow down, they respond to your signal and then everything goes successful. But if you do the same maneuver without announcing that, you cause people first, what the fork? Second of all, you put them in danger. And third, it's just the confusion and annoyment and all of those things. And he uses that metaphor to show how leaders operate in the organizations. So it's very important that you are aware of what kind of message you are sending throughout your verbal and nonverbal communication. And he also pointed out that uh, a part of the coaching for executives should be also focused on that aspect because you might not be aware how impactful what you are saying, what you are doing is for other people. And that's true because now when I was reading that, I thought to, my, I thought to myself, okay, what are the leaders that I worked with? Hmm, what I was looking at, like how many stories I build in my head based on what they said or, you know, show. So I think like it was good that it was at the beginning of the book because it really shows that uh, it's important aspect that we should be aware of and that it's also something that we can use for the advantage for the leaders, like if they want to communicate more efficiently, if they want to avoid some misunderstanding and changing lines without telling it to people like, oh, by the way, the Agile transformation started yesterday. Yeah, go on board. <laughs> yeah, if you don't show your blinking light before, don't expect that people will. Yeah, there was some really good and and uh, and spot on advice towards to, to leaders here. That that some of which you've touched on, and and that was some of my takeaways as well. And I've I've held leadership positions in a number of, of organizations, and two things jump out. One is that this book is aimed at middle managers, and he's talking about leadership. And I think a lot of middle managers don't see themselves as leaders. They see it themselves as the, the, the right hand of the leader, as the, the agent of the company leadership. And they forget that they're the one that the people whose salaries they set see every day. For them, they are the voice of leadership. And, and some of the things that, they, that he said, in addition to just being really clear about announcing your int intent, um, are things like, yes, people are always watching you. They ascribe meaning to the smallest little things you do. If, if you're just in a hurry and, and you brush off somebody in the hallway, they'll think, you know, ooh, is Dan on the way out? You know, did you see the way he was just treated by Sarah? <laughs> or um, if they don't know what you want, they will fill in the blanks with guesses. They'll put a lot of energy and effort into guessing what it is you're thinking. Um, and the other one that I've seen, and, and I see this so much in my own leadership experience, is that that the people that, that you're leading will not give you feedback even when you ask for it. You can say, I'm open to feedback. My door's open. Talk to me anytime. They don't. They won't. And it's, you can't put it on them to do that. You have to really create the culture and environment in which you can solicit 
what it is that, that you need from them and what they need from you. You can't just announce it and expect them to do it. So, so yeah, I, I think the stuff on leadership here was great. A lot of it came from a book which I haven't read, which is uh, Tribal Leadership, A Tribal Leader's Guide to Strategy. And I think we'll be talking about that a bit with the author because I had a lot of questions about how that, that influenced him. So I think I'm going to put that off until we get to the, the author interview episode. But um, so, so my takeaways, my, my, my biggest takeaway, I think um, um, I'm going to have to go right to the top. I'm, I'm going to have to go right to the top here because uh, this is the, the, the title of the book is the culture game. And so we, we kind of have to talk about games, don't we? And, and so he starts out by talking about games. What is a game? And to some extent, when you, when you apply his definition of a game, almost everything you do in a corporation is a game. A meeting is a game. A conversation is a game. A sprint is a game. Um, a workshop is a game. And, and so his definition of a game is any exchange, any activity that has a clear goal, clear rules, some sort of feedback mechanism, and participation is optional. And and these these are worth a little thought because because he also talks about bad games. So if you consider everything that you do in an organization, every meeting, every interaction, every sprint, what have you, to be a game, then a good game has a clear goal, clear rules, some kind of feedback mechanism, and everyone's there because they want to be there. Participation is optional. And so if you apply that to your meetings, a bad game is a meeting that doesn't have a clear goal or that doesn't have clear rules or doesn't have some feedback mechanism so people know whether they're making progress or not. Or participation isn't optional. So you have people there who are disengaged or even actively working against the spirit of the, the activity. And, uh, and, it, and, and that right there provides a wonderful way of evaluating your, your interactions, especially those interactions over which you, in this case, as, an, as a manager, have con- control. Because one, one of the powers that managers have is they can call a meeting. And so if you're going to call a meeting, make it a game. And if you're going to make it a game, make it a good game. You know, I can go into this a little bit. Um, I was in an organization, uh, one of those times when I took, took a job. I, 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 was, I had been a, a consultant trainer for a long time. I wanted to get back into the nitty-gritty and experience what it's like to be, be a, just, just a person with a job. And I did it at a huge bank. I, I, I took, took a job as an agile coach in a huge bank. And one of the things, I, I had just come from doing a lot of Kanban training. And so one of the things I felt very strongly about was, was having very, very clear rules so that everybody understood the rules that we're following and making clear that the rules that, that maybe were just implied that, that everyone behaved as though they existed, but didn't necessarily exist. Like, for example, if, um, if I observe that the department head every once in a while comes down to, to the floor and goes up to a developer and whispers in her ear and then she changes what she's doing and starts working on whatever it is is that he asked for. And I see this consistently. I might say, you know, it appears that we have a rule 
that if the department had asked you to do something, you drop everything that you're doing and you do it immediately. And so let's write that down. I would write that down and put it up on the wall. And then the department head would see that on the wall and say, what is this? Well, this is the rule that everyone appears to be following. And he might say, well, that's not what I want. If I, tell, if I ask somebody to do something for me and they're doing something more important, I'd like them to tell me that they're doing something more important. And so we changed the rule, right? And one of the rules that, that we as a group came up with, without the manager involved in setting these rules for our teams, was that all meetings are optional and that anyone could leave a meeting at any point if they realized that they weren't adding or getting value from it. And this caused the department head to stand up and walk over to me and say, um, Paul, what is this? I'm not comfortable with this. And I encouraged him to give it a shot. I encouraged him to give it a shot because, because there are other things going on. You know, if, if, um, because there are other things going on. The people in this department honestly cared about his best efforts to do his job. And so if he called a meeting that he considered to be important to doing his job, even if participation were optional, people would come out of as a show of support. And they did. It never caused a problem. Or you might have somebody who hates retrospectives, for example. They just hate retrospectives. So maybe they don't come after you make this rule. Well, that's a great indicator, right? You might not know if your retrospectives are mandatory. You might not know that this person who shows up to every retrospective and never speaks in them hates that time. And this is a great way of, of, of finding out who is invested, who's not, and adjusting your, your practices and adjusting your communications in order to get people more invested. So for that reason, I, I, I think that one is particularly powerful. If all meetings are optional, you quickly figure out which meetings are valuable to whom and which aren't, and you can start making adjustments. So I think I think kind of key to the whole book is this concept of, of good games. But you know, Paul, it's, it's so funny when you said about the department head, because I remember when I announced in one of the organizations that uh, retrospectives are optional, and my boss came to me and he asked me, so for what are we paying you as a scrum master? If no one comes, like, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> I said, oh, if no one comes, then I will have so much work that you should pay me even <laughs> twice because it means that we have this serious, serious problem. Yeah. But, you know... I like that answer. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I would add just one more thing to your takeaway about the, about the game. Because when, when I took the book to my hands and I... So the title, of course, game, I was thinking like, okay, so what is the, what game you have to play to win? Or, you know, what is the game that you play when you are losing? And it jumped on me very quickly in the book that they said, this is not about winning or losing. <laughs> this is just about the rules that you just described, the, the, the principles of, of a good game. And I think that some of the people, uh, when they hear the word game, they think about those dysfunctional little games that are played, you know, behind the screens, next to the water cooler, you know, all of the, yeah, not cool stuff. But yeah, okay. Moving to the new takeaway. <laughs> you know, Paul, if you don't give me the buttons to make special effects, I will make my own special effects. So the sounds effect. <laughs> so then you can choose what's, what's better. Mm. So... One of my takeaways was actually about the power of the visual management. And if you read the book from Dominica de Grandes, 
make work visible, you might think, yeah, nothing new. We know that we have to visualize what we cannot visualize, we cannot manage. But I loved the example that he gave. He said, we learn visual management so early in our lifehood. We learn in kindergarten. We learn at school. We know that if we have to learn something, we have to see it. We put so much time and effort into that. And then we forget. <laughs> like, you know, then we just, just don't, don't, don't do it uh, anymore. And he also gives the definition of inattentional blindness, which is like the failure to notice something that is completely visible because of the lack of attention. And I'm sure that you remember this experiment with a gorilla that passes a group of teenagers passing, who are just passing the ball in, in the circle. And then the people who are watching the video are asked to count how many ball passes were in the group and they can give the number. But they totally failed to notice that there was a gorilla that ran through the room. And that's what I think it's important when it comes to the visual management. We don't want to have those gorillas. We don't or we want to have just less gorillas that we don't see. We want to make sure that people understand the work environment. So it's like a call to your kindergarten experience that makes you realize, okay, there is something in it. We should try to invest more time and help people with also their brain perception because with so many impulses that are constantly given by the environment, it's it's very hard to create the attention all the time. Mm -hmm. Funny story. I, I had a, a team that I was working with, with that was using Kanban. And there were a lot of of delays in this system. There were there were a lot of really frustrating and and should have been manageable dependencies in this system that were causing ridiculous delays, like pieces of work that should have taken a day or two, taking fifty or sixty or seventy. And and I had, of course all of the, the visual diagrams and such. On the Kanban board, there was a cumulative flow diagram. It was printed in pretty colors on an A4 piece of paper. But um, but one of the things I started doing to call this out is we were using Post-it notes for, for each of the, the work items and writing the start and end date, of course, so that we had the lead time for each work, work item. But I started taking the post-it notes off the board as they were finished and putting them on the wall beside it and organizing them uh, linearly by the lead times. And because like our, our longest lead time was like 82 days. And so you can imagine that this, this queue of post-it notes went out 82 post-it notes long. And you could do the math and figure out just how big that is. I think they're like three centimeters, 82 times three with a, with a, a one centimeter space in between them. But it basically looked like about six or seven meters from start to finish. And over time, just by putting each new one as it was finished into the same column as the others of the same lead time, I built up a, a six or seven meter long histogram with with this really fat, long tail. And as it grew over the weeks, it became harder and harder and harder to ignore until, until finally some, some people who 
and we're very senior in the organization, that's a whole different story we can go into, started noticing this because it became impossible not to notice. And it led to some conversations that led to some pretty fundamental changes in the way the organization organized its its communications and work and and tooling. So so yeah, indeed, if it, you you can have great communication, you can have great communication tools, you can have great information radiators, but but if you have too many of them or if if they're not they're not clearly drawing attention the way they need to be, then then you need to rethink them because it's very easy to walk past something and ignore it if it's not what you're focused on. But you know, Paul, I remember I remember that story and I remember that it became my inspiration when I was working in with different teams to put things on the walls. And I remember in one of the companies when the team were trying to find out what are the things that slow them down. And there was like the, the brainstorming. And there was one sticking out with the CEO ideas from shower <laughs> that was just put on the wall. And again, the CEO was visiting the Krakow's department and he was like, huh? What, what, what does it mean? That, that led to a very interesting conversation, but he was at least aware. Uh, he became more aware how his uh, great ideas from morning shower impact the delivery. Mm. So next takeaway from you. Next takeaway. Um, you know, it's, it's one that I've seen in a number of books and it's never developed enough. I think this is another one to, to go into a bit in the interview. And that is, he talks a lot about experiments a lot but not enough. Mm. And uh, I, I don't think I've seen a really good discussion on the concept of experiments in the agile space outside of, of Claudio Peroni's work. Because people talk about experiments. I think it's one of those things, one of those words that a person says, and it's so clear in their mind that they assume that the person that they're talking to knows what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. But I have been in organizations in which experiments mean running out into the street with a prototype and I've been in organizations where experiments mean A-B testing for six weeks. And, and oftentimes an organization will get this stuck into one, one type of experimenting. And they don't realize how many different kinds of experiments there are and the fact that different sorts of experiments should be used for different sorts of domains. And, and this book as well has some clever things to say about experimenting and about the importance of having psychological safety so that people can experiment safely and failure is is not punished and, and you you move away from a culture of blame and such. These are all good things to hear. Um, one of the things he, he says that I, I, I like and I think needs to be reiterated again and again is that experiments frequently don't work out the way you plan them to. If they did, they wouldn't be experiments. I mean, if you're only testing the things you're 100% sure of, then you're not learning anything at all. And I appreciated that. Um, but, but another of the things that he says, which I haven't seen elsewhere, is that if the leaders aren't also experimenting, it sends messages to teams that they probably shouldn't either. So if you don't see your manager trying out, for example, different ways in which to structure their one-on-ones, or different formats for their meetings and then getting feedback on them and adjusting accordingly, then it suggests that the manager is afraid to fail. If the manager isn't taking risks and doing experiments and trying to learn and manage better, then that means the manager is afraid to fail. And if the manager is afraid to fail, then I probably should be afraid mm. too. And so I, that, that was, even, even though once again, I'm disappointed by 
by the coverage of experimentation in a book that talks about experimentation. Every single one of them has, has different perspectives and different insights. And there are a couple of very positive and useful insights in the section of experimentation in this mm -hmm. book. But, you know, recently I had a reflection that some companies call experimentation all the initiatives that are not like ready. Like it's not really the experiment, you know, it's really the initiative and they are really like doing it. They want to do it, but to make sure that no one asks too many questions or don't get, you know, feedback, too much feedback, it's experiment. Yeah. So it's like a, a bit, uh, I don't want to say like, it's like an MVP of doing things, but I don't see like learning coming out of it. Yeah. And it's like, okay, failed experiment, but okay. We didn't learn anything. Failed experiment. Yeah. <sighs> and no, 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 no. Sorry for my, <laughs> sorry for my sound effect. I cannot get rid of that. <laughs> The next takeaway, it's actually to pay attention to role definition. And on the one hand, it sounds so simple, but I think that we would be surprised as people working in organization, how many people have different idea of what is the role compared to what are they doing, compared to what their manager thinks that they should be doing. And this book also gave the idea that if you are hired and you hold some position, it would be good to list down what are your responsibilities and confront them with your manager or with you know other people in the team. And I think that that's a very good idea because so often, at least I experienced that I was doing things that were not the part of my job descriptions. And I was doing them because I felt that's the right thing to do. I have to do it. No one else does it. This is important. And I was thinking everyone should, you know, applause to me and say, well done that you did it. But is it? No. I think that maybe they had a different expectation. Maybe they would appreciate if I wouldn't go the extra mile in that direction. And by not having this conversation, I could and I had some kind of dissatisfaction with their lack of Oh, well done. You did that. And they probably had the like, they also had the dissatisfaction with like, okay, why is she doing that? Not that she was supposed to do particular that thing. So in my opinion, this is a very important conversation that we should have while working inside of the companies to make sure what is our role. And if we don't like what we hear from our manager and his expectation, that's a great way to try to redefine your role. Or maybe the people inside of the team, they also don't know what's your role. I remember that one time, one of my teammates, he asked me, so sorry for asking, it's just out of the curiosity, but what are you actually doing? <laughs> and then, <laughs> at the first moment, I was, uh, I, you know, I had this like emotional rush, like, you don't see what I'm doing, I'm doing so much. But then I thought in the second, when the emotions went down, it's like, Oh, yeah, they might have no idea what I'm actually doing. So then I had a, like a longer conversation. Oh, that's cool. That's interesting. We could help you with this and that. Tell us. And that really was the beginning of very, very successful collaboration. But if that person wouldn't ask that, they could be annoyed because they would have a different expectations towards me and towards my work. You know, that's interesting because while I completely agree with you 
And I've been in a number of instances in which we've seen um, dissatisfactions because expectations that, that were not explicitly stated weren't being met or, or critical work not being done because person A thinks it's person B's job and person B thinks it's person A's job. And so there are certainly instances in which I've recommended using a tool that, I mean, most listeners are probably familiar with the racing matrix where you, you list all of the roles and you list all of the, the activities and then you identify what each person's relationship is with each activity and you make sure you know who's responsible for what, who should be, who's accountable for making sure it's done properly and timely and what have you, who should be informed about it, et cetera. Um, by the same token, this was in a section about boundaries. And, and he was talking about, um, about having clear boundaries makes people feel more comfortable, more grounded, makes them, them know what their role is, what their place is. And in the context of, say, a meeting, for example, that makes a lot of sense. Like, like we're, we're going to be, be doing these things in this order. You're going to do this and you're going to do this and you're going to do this. Everyone knows what their role is or your job is to, to poke holes in this idea or your job is to find ways to, to encourage this idea. Whatever it is, those, those kind of boundaries make a lot of sense. I do worry a little bit when you're talking about roles within a development team. Mm. And, and I'm not going to do the whole scrum dogmatic thing and saying that there, there, there are no roles within a development team. There's, there's just the development team. I mean, I can see the value of having, having people who have specific skill sets. But by the same token, it's very dangerous to define roles inside of a team, one team, too narrowly mm. because – you start getting into, well, it's not my fault it broke. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Know? I knew it would break, but it wasn't my yeah. fault. Or, or so, so I, I think this needs to be negotiated very, very carefully. And this might be one of the things we talk to the author about when we do the interview is, is to try to understand his thinking about where roles belong and where roles don't belong. Because he does talk about places in which you should have firm boundaries and places where fuzzy boundaries mm -hmm. are, are more appropriate. And I think that applies to roles as yep. well. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. um, but 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 that being said, I absolutely agree with everything that you say. And and it's it's always a valuable discussion to have. But but I think it, it's it's more relevant when you have people who are not within a, a specific team and don't have clear boundaries. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking up and down the hierarchy, for example, as, as, or when you're looking at between teams, what are the responsibilities of the scrum master of team A and the scrum master of team B to each other, mm. for example. Um, but inside of a development team, it gets, it gets kind of dicey. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. they're all responsible for delivering value efficiently. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, I get the point. And you know, one thing that he also mentioned about the managing boundaries, uh, he mentioned that if you have the fuzzy boundaries, not clear boundaries, it gives the advantage for people who can negotiate better. And it immediately made me think of you uh, when you always say that don't voting it's like not the best brainstorming uh, prioritization technique, you know, whatever you, you call it. Because again, it gives the voice to like something that is like maybe the most popular, but at the same time, it could become most popular because a lot of people started seeing that other put the votes there and yeah, it just goes in this direction. But it really made me to realize, and I didn't think about it before, that fuzzy boundaries are in favor for people with the negotiation skills. And we have to be aware that not everyone is there yet, and maybe they won't be ever, and it's nothing bad. Mm -hmm. 
I, you know, it's something else I really enjoyed. Another takeaway I took from this, because I, I was familiar with this, but I hadn't quite thought of it in the same terms, is the idea of using protocols for crucial communication. Oh, yes. And I thought that was a wonderful discussion. I've got a few myself. I mean, people who know me have heard me talk about things like nonviolent communications and clean language. Um, he mentions the core protocols, and we're not going to go into what those are in this in this podcast, but if you don't know, we'll put a link. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's, it's definitely something to look into. But this idea that, that there are certain categories of conversation, and, and when you're in that category, and that category might be something like um, – like gaining agreement on needs, for example, or dealing with conflict. There's so many opportunities for misunderstanding in human communication that there are a variety of clear protocols that one can use such that one adapts one's language to a style which is less inclined to misunderstanding. And, and that really spoke to me. I once saved a guy's job using clean language. A team came to me. I didn't work with them at all. They're a different part of the company, but they had heard rumors about this, this guy over on this other floor who, who was working magic with Agile. And they came to me and they had had an open conversation with the team about how much they hated this dude. And he was part of the conversation. Uh, fundamentally, his personality just was like nails on a chalkboard to these people. And they didn't know what to do about it. And, and so we had a, a, I organized a session with, with the team in which we used clean language to talk about, about how they interpreted their, their, their roles and needs and relationships. And simply using clean language to take all of the, the judgment out of the conversation allowed them to have a conversation whereby they understood that this person wasn't just fundamentally negative he was actually really, really committed to the project, but he felt that what he brought to it, in fact, he felt very strongly that what he brought to it was a, a much more critical eye and a deeper understanding of the risks. And, and he lacked the ability to communicate those things in a way that didn't look like he was just trashing the project and the team. And as they came to understand this, they developed using clean language, a set of protocols to use when communicating with this person and a set of protocols that he would use when communicating his concerns and, and, and criticisms. Because when they came into the meeting, he was convinced that the only solution was for him to leave the company, mm. despite the fact that he was really good at his job. Mm. And as far as I know, he's still there. So, so, but I hadn't really thought about it in that. I, I, I thought about, about these things like nonviolent communication, clean language, and, and, and core protocols as tools. But I, I like the way that he packages them all together as like a tool kit containing several different tools and then categorizes them as communication protocols and assigns them to specific domains, specific types of, of communication, cha communication challenges. So that, because that makes it easier to think of. You can say, aha. It sounds like we have a two-party interpersonal conflict. Aha. And as a team, we've decided to use nonviolent communication for, for dealing with this, right? Person A, yes, yes, right. Right, person B, sure, we can do that. And, and, and for, kind of formalize those things inside the organization or inside the team. Speaking of ideas that were briefly described in the book, but not went in too much detail, I have one takeaway. It is all about five levels of culture 
that was described in the tribal leadership by Dave Logan. And also that's the book that Paul referenced in his elevator pitch. And what it says is like, there are like five stages, uh, that reference to the language and the culture of the organization. I loved how they are called. The first one is like, life sucks. So that's a stage that it might be typical for the criminals, for the members of gangs that they think like, okay, the whole world, it's the worst place. Uh, we hate it. It's, we are always the victim of everything. We have the right to everything. We have to get it by ourselves. The second stage is like actually my life suck. So it's like clearly I'm the victim. The whole organization is the worst place. Uh, the whole team, team hates me. Company, it's just a horrible place to be. Whatever I do, it doesn't matter because yeah, it will when it will go bad. Third stage. And he says like it's one of the most popular one or like my, the most common, not popular. It's I'm great. You are not. <laughs> so uh, thank you for your feedback, but I think you have the problem. Definitely not me. The fourth one, it's we are great. So it's kind of similar to the third one, but in the sense like, okay, our team is the best. We deliver the most and we would be the successful company if this team in X country <laughs> would do their job better. Canada. Yeah, Canada. <laughs> That's what I wanted <laughs> Uh, damn, those Canadians, yeah. Those, <laughs> those Canadians. Canadians. And the fifth one, which is like the desired, you can say, state, it's life is great. And it might sound a bit cliche, but it means that uh, at this stage, we are focused on building things together, that we feel that we are part of something with other people and we are just trying to make things better. And... I have to read on that a bit, a bit more also because it's interesting concept. But I think having these stages in mind will help me to look the, at the organizations or teams in a little bit different uh, perspective. Yeah, I was thinking as I, as I was reading this section that uh, I really want to read the book tribal leadership that he recommends. I read most of the books that he recommends, but not this one. And it sounds like you want to as well. So maybe that could be a bonus episode that oh, we yeah, do sometime. Perfect. We can read it together. Perfect. Um, there was, there, there's a lot in this book. There's, there's one more that, that I'm going to call out here because I want to discuss it a bit with the author. It was, it was just the briefest of mentions, but the idea, and I think it came up in one of the early chapters, is the power of paying attention collectively which really gets my imagination going because I have, especially, especially working remotely where people aren't collaborating in real time and can't see each other throughout the day. I see even within a single team work getting very compartmentalized, like going apart and coming together again at the daily standup and going apart and coming together again at the daily standup in a way that they don't do in real life. And, and even inside of a standup where especially when it's remote, it's a lot easier to tune out to what's being said. It's like, this is important to me. That's not important to me. And, uh, and this is the reason why I want to explore a bit more about what he was thinking when he used this expression, because the idea of paying attention collectively is, is to me not only really powerful, but I think it's one of the major failings of agile teams and especially remote agile teams is this ability to, 
to work together on each person's concerns, problems, challenges, ambitions, what have you, and 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 not you have to be able to focus when you're working. But when when you're not working, when you're collaborating, when you're in those collaborative spaces, like during a retrospective, during a planning, during and especially during a stand-up, the ability for a whole group of like six, seven, eight, nine people to actually pay attention to what's going on with one person at a time could be enormously powerful. And I, I wish that concept were developed more in this book, but we can we can maybe tease some more out of the author during the interview for our next episode. And Paul, I know it's not the time yet for the favorite quotation, but what you just said was the perfect intro for one of my favorite quotations, which is, what you choose to pay attention creates your reality. I loved it. I have it. I can't see my screen behind me, but I have it on my big blue sticky note, like on my screen, because I really believe in it. I really believe in it after reading, not after, after reading that book, but this book made me realize that that's true. And since I read this quotation, when I feel like angry or something, I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Where do I pay attention? Maybe it comes a little bit for the mindfulness, but perfect, perfect. Highly recommended for everyone. <laughs> well, I'm ready to move on to favorite quotations if you are. I mean, there's a lot in this book, but but um, a lot of it we're going to have to delve into deeper with the author anyway, and we've got another ah, whole hour. Okay, 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 okay. So, so yeah, we, we, can, we can move into, into favorite quotations because um, I've, got, I've got several of my own. Um, I, yeah, okay, this one's kind of self-serving. <laughs> I like this. This is self-serving, and you'll know why I chose this one. There is a big section in this book about coaching. There's a lot about coaching. I didn't go into it because we did a whole podcast about coaching. But um, but the, I, think, I think this quotation summarizes it neatly. Coaching isn't cheap. However, mediocre results are much more expensive. Coaching has a very high return on investment if you structure the engagement to focus on specific areas of improvement for your organization. Mm which is kind of what I do for a living. So I like that. You know, I also put it as my favorite quotation, like in the book, I highlighted it. But then when I was writing things down for the episode, I was like, oh, that's so long to, to write. I cannot cut it off. I'm sure Paul will have it. Because <laughs> I knew that you are right now doing a lot of coaching. Okay. I loved the definition of the leader. Leader is anyone who influences anyone else in social setting, such as team or organization. There have been the number of times when I was called that, oh, you are not in the leadership position to, you know, do this or that. No, I am. <laughs> and now if someone uh, tells me that, I will say, no, 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 no. Listen, the perfect definition of the leader is the person who influences other person in the social setting. Mic dropped. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, we can all be leaders, and 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 this is this is what we've learned in so many of the books that we've we've read about change management, and and what what is what is um oh goodness April's book oh yeah oh and and, and ever since we read read April Mills book everyone is a change agent indeed leadership can and should come from anywhere and of course that's one of the it's one of the Kanban values is is that encourage acts of leadership at all levels all right so. This is one that I liked a lot, and 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 just 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 to, to to mull over, just to think about in the context of your own experience. Quote: In organizations, it is perhaps ironic that we perceive authority 
as a constant threat to our individual survival. <laughs> yes. You know, on some level, in so many organizations, when, when the boss walks into the room, and, and the higher they are in the hierarchy, the more frightening it is, at some level, almost everyone in the room is like, everything could go south from this moment yeah. on. The next word that I say could be the one that gets me fired. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's something that, that leaders, they might be keenly aware of it when they're at the lower levels of their career, and somehow leaders forget how much, how much damage they have potential to do when they walk into a room and, and how frightening they might be, even in a place that actually works on psychological safety. So I, I, I love the way he said mm. that. Okay. Next one. I have a few more that I'm going to say them all because they are short, but not all at once. All learning is a change. And all change is belief change. When you learn... You modify, and then he uses a software people might say refactor your belief. And I love it. I love the expression refactor your belief, and that learning is the change of belief. And and that's true. I yeah, I remember what I learned at school and what I'm learning right now, and it's so contradictionary sometimes, but it doesn't mean that that was the waste time. Very nice. I, I've got some short ones too. So I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll just bang, bang, oh, yeah, get bang the short ones yeah. out. <laughs> Let's do it. Safety is fragile. It must be made fresh daily. Oh, yeah. Just a nice reminder that psychological safety is not something you do once. It's something you do continuously. You bake it into your organization because you're never done. Okay. Seeing is believing. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I don't think he made that one up. <laughs> I don't want to make the reference to what I think it could come from, so I will move to one more. Iteration helps us to make sense of complexity, and I think that that's true because we kind of feel so overwhelmed if we see like the whole system, the complexity of it. But if we just take like a one piece of pizza instead of putting the whole pizza in my, our mouth, this is better di digestible. You know, his ideas about this kind of rubbed me the wrong oh. way. I get it. I, I completely get it. And, and he was writing this in 2012, and his, most of his background is in Scrum. And so he said a lot of things about iterations ah. that made the, the time box iteration sound like a must-have. Ah. Like, you cannot have a retrospective without a time box iteration, because what are you talking about? Where do you draw these mm. boundaries? And, and this rubbed me the wrong way for a couple of reasons. One is, I mean, obviously, I've done a lot of work with a lot of successful teams that don't use time box iterations and have had regular re retrospective um, cadences. Um, but, but, but it's this, and that is, the thought that I had is that when you're doing Scrum, if you're doing Scrum, there's a different ways of approaching a, a Scrum um, iteration, and most of them are, are, are problematic. But let's say, for example, that you're doing it right, and you have a, a, a sprint that has a sprint goal, and inside the sprint, you're, you've got a, a sprint backlog, which is the work items that you think will, will best achieve the sprint goal. There are the most common things that happen are at the end of a sprint, there are work items that don't get completed, probably, ideally, right? Um, and and there work there may even be work items that are partially complete. 
If you work towards a different sprint goal in the next sprint, there's really only a few things you can do. You can take all of the incompleted items and just automatically carry them over. You could take all the incompleted items or not started items and delete them, never carry them over. So, so, so my thinking is this. I, I, I have yet to see a team that consistently um, does not have enough work items to fill a sprint. So there's always some carryover. There's some partial completed work. There's some unstarted work. And if, if partially completed work is carried over, then are you really doing time box iterations or you're just changing the goal periodically? And if it's never carried over, then, then you're just creating more technical debt. And, and so this idea that the time boxing creates the, 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 these clean boundaries, these neat boundaries where you can say this was a piece of a thing that contains mm-hmm. nothing that came before and nothing that goes after that we can discuss in, in isolation, I think is, is wishful thinking. Oh, yeah. And so, so I'm, not, I'm not nearly as a, attached. Also, there's, there's nothing about, about time box iterations in the Agile Manifesto. There's nothing fundamentally um, essential about using time box iterations and, and being agile. So, so I think that's, that's kind of um, limiting, limiting thinking. And there are many other ways to think about how to reflect on pieces of work and how to reflect on, on processes and such without necessarily parceling it out in what I think are, are, are generally artificial uh, constraints that aren't that that certainly add value at a point, mm-hmm. but I would kind of expect any any mature team to eventually move beyond time box mm-hmm. iterations of either fixed amounts of work or single specific goals. Interesting. Hmm. But I can't blame anyone for saying that in 2012. Yeah. There weren't a whole lot of examples. Mm-hmm. This is something we can talk about, maybe yeah, in an after yeah, show yeah, or something. Yeah. But yeah, that, but that, that, that is the fact that um, that the vast majority of the most successful companies out there aren't using any kind of agile methodology, mm-hmm. and so, and 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 the vast majority of failed companies are <laughs> using agile methodologies by the book. So we really shouldn't be so attached to this idea that Scrum by the book is a be-all and end-all mm. and will solve all your yeah, problems. Yeah. But <laughs> I said it's interesting because, you know, I interpret it like in a little bit different uh, different way than do, than you. And it's always good for me to talk with you because you have like totally sometimes different <laughs> idea of what it means. But let's do the last favorite quotation, if that's okay. And I will still start because I hope that that quotation was on your list or at least that you pay attention to it to the, in the book. So the coach is supposed to teach these roles not to occupy them indefinitely. If the coach occupies important roles, no one is learning how to occupy them. Instead, the coach is increasing dependency and reducing learning. So that goes beautifully with what you always taught me that the role of the agile coach is to disappear at one point, <laughs> vanish, never been there, everything happened. No one saw it was him or her, but it's done. 
You know, interestingly, I didn't put that in the list of my favorite quotations, but I did copy and paste it into a chat to a friend of mine who's taking a new job. As my uh, <laughs> so I, <laughs> because I, I know it, it, it's her inclination to, to, she's very attached to the Scrum Master role and she performs it very well. And, and so one of, the, one of my biggest fears for her is she's going to move into this agile coaching role and just end up getting stuck in, in uh, multiple Scrum Master roles. And so, but, but it was unnecessary. She said, yes, 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 I know, I know, I know. <laughs> All right, so we're coming to the end. I think we should wrap this up. There's, there's certainly a lot left to talk about and we'll be talking about it in the after show. And uh, there's some things we need to dig into more deeply and we'll dig into those with the author in our next podcast. But, um, but now as, we, as we're wrapping things up here, so just wrapping things up here, I, I, I want, want to remind everybody that um, there is going to be an after show. We're going to, we, we've got more things to talk about. We've, we've, we've got um, a lot more takeaways that we were able to get into in, the, in this episode. I, I know that Justin and I have ideas about this book that we weren't, weren't able to get into. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the other books that we're reading. Justin, you brought this up um, um, with me last week. And, uh, and indeed, there are a number of interesting books that I'm reading. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about those and a little bit about um, some product books as well. We can talk about those in the after show and all the interesting things that are going on in our, our professional and maybe not so professional lives. But, um, but if you're not a Patreon subscriber, if you are a Patreon subscriber, I don't care if it's just a buck a month. I, I've said this before, the, the gulf between somebody who gives us a buck a month and somebody who gives us nothing is huge compared to the people who give us a buck a month versus $5 a month. They, because, I mean, I appreciate everyone who contributes to the, the costs of, of creating this show, but but really there's a level of commitment that, that's involved in going in and just saying, you know, I like what you're doing enough to create a Patreon account and and to, to put in my credit card and, and to help you out a little bit. And uh, and so we don't, we don't distinguish Everybody at any Patreon price point gets all of the additional um, um, audio materials that we create, whether it's a special episode, whether it's it's a bonus, whether it's it's the after show, it's it's all there for you. But if you don't, and that's fine, that's fine, no judgment, then uh, we'll see you in another month when we are going to be interviewing the author of the culture the culture game, Daniel Mezik. So thanks for listening and and goodbye everyone. Have a wonderful month. And Paul, it would be so perfect if I would know how to do the drum rolls effect, you know, so I could just finish our episode like that. Maybe I should learn that. Or maybe not. I, I am terrified that somebody is going to give you a soundboard for Christmas. Or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Please do it, people. Please, all of my friends who are listening to the podcast, do it, do it. Bye-bye, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs>